0: My name is Adam, one of the elders here at Missio. It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's great to be back with you all this morning. As my family and I have spent the last couple of months out in Casanovia helping to start uh, the church out there, uh, it's good to, to be back. I haven't seen many of you in a while. So uh, this morning we're, we're continuing our series in Mark, and so it's my privilege and honor to lead us during this time as we go to Mark chapter 11. And so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. Mark 11, verses 12 through 33, and uh, as we continue this series looking at the life of Jesus Christ, our our true king, our true savior. I believe it's page 847 uh, in your your pew Bible. If you grab one there, it'll also be up on the screen. So Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man they were afraid of the people? For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it your spirit teaches us, corrects us, encourages us, rebukes us, And how desperately we need your direction, your leadership, your lordship over our lives. And so we thank you for your word which points us to Christ. And may we see more of who he is this morning. And may we respond in worship, in loving obedience. May we exalt him here in this place, in our lives, and to the nations. So guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been going through Mark, we've seen this journey to Jerusalem as Jesus and his disciples have been traveling there. And he's been telling them over the last few chapters, in no uncertain terms, that he is going to be condemned by the religious leaders. And this morning, in this text, we see the continuation and the escalation of that tension in this passage between Jesus... And the religious leaders. And then he he tells them that he's going to be mocked, that he's going to be spit on, that he's going to be killed, and after three days, he's going to rise. And so all of this has been moving towards Jerusalem, where last week, Jordan looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 11, where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem riding on the colt, right? The triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. But it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. As all of this has been building, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, goes into the temple. Verse 11, it tells us that he looks around and then he leaves. Kind of an unusual ending for Mark who has a way of moving quickly through this story at a rapid pace and immediately he goes there and immediately he goes there. And finally we get to the temple, we get to Jerusalem which we've been waiting for and Jesus spends a minute there and heads back out. And so Jordan mentioned this last week, that it shows us that what Jesus is about to do, right, in the cursing of the fig tree, in this dramatic scene in the temple where he's flipping over tables and telling nobody to bring anything through the temple, it shows us that what he's about to do is not simply an emotional reaction. Jesus goes into the temple, looks around, goes back out, which is intended to set up where we are today, his return to the temple the next day, so that we know that the actions that we read about, the actions that we discussed this morning, they're deliberate, they're intentional, he's not flying off the handle, that this is actually an act of judgment. And so this passage that we have this morning, it is a warning, it's a judgment against the people of Israel. Jesus here is judging Israel for forsaking both God, the glory of God, and his plan through man-centered religion. And they have forsaken God by taking the sacrificial system, Right at the center of this is the temple, and all that God intended for that and making it about themselves. Taking all that God had blessed them with and all that he had laid out for them and making it about themselves. So they've forsaken God, they've forsaken his plan, and Jesus is judging them for that. And so what I hope we'll see through their through this negative example, through this judgment against Israel, hopefully we see what God desires for his people. Right, three things that God desires that we would live, number one, for his glory, number two, on his mission. And number three, by faith in him. that We see from this judgment, we see from this negative example, God's desire for us, for his people, to live for his glory, to live on his mission, to live by faith in him. And so before Jesus goes back into the temple, we get to verses 12 through 14, and Mark records this cursing of a fig tree. And Jesus does this intentionally on his way to the temple in order to illustrate what he's about to do there, right? That's the whole point of this fig tree thing where Jesus sees this fig tree off in a distance. He comes up to it to see if, it has, if he could find anything on it and it says he found no fruit, nothing but leaves for it was not the season. And so he curses this and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, right? He ends the life of this fig tree cursing it forever, And again, Jesus isn't mad at the tree, right? He's not taking out his hunger on the tree, right? He's not hangry, where he's lost all control because of his hunger, right? It reminds me of the Snicker commercials, right? You're not you when you're hungry. And you've got the one where Marsha Brady comes down to complain about Peter, right? And instead of sweet Marsha Brady, she's this, you know, axe-wielding, leather vest-wearing, tattooed, Kind of biker looking gang member, right? And the, whole, the tagline is, You're not you when you're hungry. Right? That's not what's happening here. It's not, be, though Mark says Jesus is hungry, it's not that he's lost control, it's not that he's frustrated with this fig tree, and so he curses it just because he can, right? Just to prove his power. Right? That would seem awfully petty. But doing this right before he enters the temple, this is really Jesus acting out a parable. Right? Instead of speaking the parable as he normally does, here he's, he's acting it out. And as we often see with Mark, right there's this sandwich where the meat of it is this interaction in the temple. The meat of it is when he goes into the temple and he turns things over. Right? But that's sandwiched in between him cursing the fig tree and then them going back out and seeing the fig tree in its condition withered away. And so we realize that This is a parable of judgment against Israel. It's, again, a deliberate act. It's intended to set up and interpret for us what we read about in the temple. And it's a parable against Israel. We know this because in the Old Testament, Israel is described as a fig tree and as a vine. Often in the same verse, it describes Israel as both a fig tree and a vine. Jeremiah 8, chapter 13 Says, so when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What I gave them has passed away from them. In that chapter, there it is, right? He's describing Israel, faithless Israel, as a vine, right? As a fig tree with no figs, with no fruit. And in the verses leading up to that, he says that he condemns them because they're saying to him, We're wise, and the Lord is with us, and yet he says that the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. He says they've rejected the word of the Lord right before this verse. He says that from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, Everyone deals falsely. He says, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? They've misrepresented God. The religious leaders of the day have misled the people corruptly and for unjust gain. And so he says in Jeremiah that they're like a fig tree with no fruit. And so clearly this fig tree represents Israel with the outward appearance of spirituality, of religiosity, the outward appearance of a fig tree, but no fruit. And so that's his assessment. That's Jesus' assessment and judgment of Israel, that they have the outward appearance of godliness, right? They have the temple in their midst, they have the priest, they have all these rituals, these sacrifices, these sacraments. They appear to be a godly people, but there's no fruit, the fruit that they were intended to bear. They've forsaken God, they've forsaken his glory. They've forsaken his plan and his purpose. It says the scripture describes in Isaiah twenty nine that there are people who draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts at the same time are far from me. And so he enters again into Jerusalem a second time. Right? And it says he entered the temple, verse 15, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. That he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So it's a remarkable scene, where here we are at really the most important building in Jerusalem at the most important time of the year, right? Passover, when people from all over came right? to celebrate this the most significant event in the history of Israel when God saved His people from slavery. And he drives out those who are selling and buying those who traveled from a distance would go there, would buy their, what they needed for their sacrificial offerings there in the outer temples of the court and Jesus drives them out. He overturns the temples of the money changer because every male had to pay an annual fee when they would go to the temple. Right? Had to pay a fee in exchange for the services offered at the temple. But foreign coins were not allowed so you had to have money changers. Right? Just like so you get to a foreign country and now you can use credit cards and you get a wonderful exchange rate. But before then, you go and you, change, you had to change money because your money was no good there in the same way, right? Foreign currency was no good at the temple, but you, you needed the local currency, you needed Jewish currency in order to pay your fee at the temple. So knowing this, right, those money changers would charge exorbitant rates, right, a huge percentage to take advantage of the people who wanted to pay their offering so that they could have the right currency, so he overturns their tables. He overturns, it says, the seats of those who sold pigeons. Right? Pigeons were the offering of the poor. We read about in the Old Testament, in the books of the law, that they were for those who could not afford an animal. So he overturns their seats. This is, right, this is like when you go to the, the airport right? and you know this, the prices there are going to be extremely high. Recently, my family and I were traveling And we've got a little bit of time before our flight, and so I get in line with the kids. We had, we've got four children, it's lunchtime, we're about to get on a plane for three hours, so we're thinking, all right, I've got a small window to get some some food, or this flight is not going to be pleasant. And so we get in line, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, extremely long line, and then the lady comes out over the PA and says, our fryer is broken, no more chicken nuggets and french fries, which that was the game plan. Right, so then we get in line at the next place and we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We're almost to the front and she gets on and she says, it's going to be at least a 45-minute wait for food. So what do we do? So I take my son to the, like, those little convenience stores where you're thinking, oh no. Like my options here, I got Pringles, I got Trail Mix, I got granola bars. I'm trying to find whatever I can to be some sort of meal replacement for my family. And of course, for things I would have paid like a couple bucks for, right, we're paying these exorbitant rates. Right? That, and so you know you're going to be taken advantage of at the airport. Sadly, this is at the temple. And these people are taking advantage of the poor who are trying to buy pigeons. Right? These people are taking advantage of those who need to trade their currency. And so Jesus comes in right, and overturns this whole scene. And yet the reality, what we know is, it's really not about the building for Jesus. He's not upset just about the use of the temple. He's not trying to separate religion and business as we often think when we come to this passage. We still get hung up sometimes about the building, if we're honest. We still get hung up sometimes about buildings like this that we call a sanctuary. That's not what's going on there. Yes, we're to be good stewards of this building. We're to take care of this building, but that's it. That's as far as it goes. There's nothing more significant about this building than the one behind me. Right, than the parish house. Though we call this a sanctuary and at times we get a little bit hung up thinking that somehow God's gonna meet us here in a special way, right? which is no longer the case. I remember as a kid after the service waiting for my parents at church and I'm running through the halls with my friends right? and sure enough, I come around the corner and just about run into one of the trustees of the church right? and I know instantly because this guy had a reputation, I know Right, I'm in trouble, and so sure enough, he grabs me by the hand, he takes me into one of the classrooms, hands me a piece of chalk, and I've got to write, I will walk in God's house. I will walk in God's house. I will, right, over and over and over again. And certainly, I should have been walking, right? It's obnoxious. Nobody wants to see kids running around, running into people, and sure, I should have been walking, but it's not God's house, right? No more than my, my, ho- my home, my house, where my family lives, that's God's house, He owns it, my job is just to steward it. And so this is not what's going on here. Jesus isn't concerned about the building going, we gotta protect the integrity of this building, we've gotta keep the business out of this building. That's not what he's upset about. He's jealous for the glory of his Father and his position among the hearts of his people. That's what Jesus is jealous for. He's jealous for the intentions the purpose for which the temple exists, to be a place, as we'll see, of prayer for all the nations. This is to be a place of God's glory. It's to represent his presence among his people. It's to be centered on him. And they've made it about themselves. See, that's what the temple was for, to put, it was a reminder, a constant reminder of God at the center of everything. It was to elevate his honor, his glory, To remind them that they, as a people, were centered around the presence of God, that that's what they were marked by, that they were to be a people in awe of His presence. That the temple was an instrument, it was an instrument for great blessing, an important instrument, but just an instrument. And so God warns His people of forsaking the God of the temple not the building of the temple, the God of the temple, by using his promises, using his blessings as an excuse for immorality, for unjust gain, for exploitation of the outsider, of the poor. And the temple functioned as a place of sacrifice. It functioned as a place to purify God's people and it become a place of corruption. And so now it's under judgment and Jesus steps in and essentially stops the whole operation. It says he would not allow, verse 16, anyone to carry anything through the temple. So yes, he's coming in judgment of the religious leaders and of the people who were exploiting the temple, but he's also overturning the whole sacrificial system. He's not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. Because in just a few days, he's going to make the final sacrifice. In just a few days, that curtain, right, hanging in front of the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year, that curtain is gonna be torn in two. Jesus is overturning that whole system. And so overall, what we see is a passage where Jesus is judging Israel for forsaking God. And I want you to think about this for a second. How have you, how have we, forsaken God. It's easy to think about the outward, rebellious acts where we take what is evil and we call it good, whether that's money, sex, or power. It's easy to think of those outward forms of rebellion, but here what's happening is not taking what's evil and calling it good, but taking what is good, right? the temple, the sacrificial system, and using it for their own glory, It's a much more subtle, oftentimes goes unnoticed way that we forsake God as taking what is good that he's meant for our blessing and for his glory and using it, usurping it for our own glory. Yes, it's clear when we certainly forsake God, whether it's through false religion, right? Through worshiping other gods, through rejecting outright Jesus, It's clear that we forsake God when we take some syncretistic blend of New Age philosophy and try to blend it, add Jesus in with that, we're forsaking God. But here, the issue is Christianity that has all the forms of Christianity, the shape, the smell, the look of Christianity, but it's all about me. What can I gain from God? What can I profit from others? Right, by having the form, the look. Right? And this is subtle, right? but it's just as deadly. And so Jesus comes in right, with great force, with great intentionality to wake them up to the reality of they may have embraced the forms that he set in place, but they've made it all about them to the point where we say, you know, I'm justified because I'm in church. I'm not like those other people that aren't in church this morning, right? Or I've read my Bible, or I haven't done it. You know, I don't yell at my kids like that person. I, I'm, for the most part, I'm pretty patient with my kids. Or right, we have the forms of what appears to be Christianity, but our hearts are far from him. Or we use those things, right? We usurp God's position, God's glory. And it is subtle, right? but how do we often know what's the measure here? He, he gives us an example, right? where we know that perhaps we have the forms of Christianity but not the heart of it when we neglect the mission of God, when we're not a blessing to others as the temple was intended to be. It was intended to be a place for all nations, where we're not interested in the privilege and responsibility of being a light to the nations, but here they are, right, gaining unjustly Right Through corrupt practices, benefiting off of the people coming to the temple when they were supposed to be in their midst as a light to the nations. That's one indicator right, that we may have the form of Christianity but not the heart of it, that we don't desire the glory of God. When we're not interested in seeing the gospel go to the nations, When we're, we're not interested in being a blessing to those in our home, in our marriage, in our neighborhood, but we use them for our own gain. Right, when we take marriage, which is a gift from God, and use it for our own gain. When we take parenting, which is a gift from God, and use it for our own gain. And so God's desire is that we as his people would live for his glory and also on his mission. In verse 17, he's teaching them then. After these actions, he's teaching them saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 56 where it says this in verses six through eight, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, right? So the foreigners, those outside of Israel, he says, who love me who want to serve me, who want to keep the Sabbath, who want to hold fast to my covenant, them, these, I will bring to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. We see God's heart for his people where he's he's blessed them tremendously, abundantly. He's put their presence in their midst. He's chosen them as a people from all nations. He's chosen them and yet he also reveals in this passage, Isaiah 56, his desire for the foreigners is that they would be a part of this as well, that they would be able to share in this as well, that his house would be a house of prayer for all people, that he would gather the outcast. And so in the temple, right, the way that this thing is constructed, the further out you go, right, the more people are involved in it. I mean, it starts in the Holy of Holies with a high priest who can go once a year, right, out to the most holy place where the priests can enter. Then you have the inner courts where the Jews are allowed to go and the preparations are made for sacrifice to the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where anyone from outside of Israel could go to offer their prayers to benefit from God's blessing of the people of Israel. And so Jesus says, my house, he claims ownership. My house, he claims ownership and then gives purpose. My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. There was a divine purpose for that place, for that court of the Gentiles, which they had usurped, which they were utilizing, taking advantage of for their own gain. The temple, as I said, is symbolized God's dwelling with Israel, but not just for Israel. Yes, it was his dwelling in the midst of Israel, but it wasn't solely for Israel. They were to utilize this privilege, this blessing as a light to the nations. And so the blessing of God's presence served an important purpose among the nations. We know that God didn't choose Israel because they were special. He tells us in Deuteronomy 7 that you're a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest. So he didn't choose them because they were special. He didn't choose them because we were great. He says he chose them because they were the fewest and because it was the Lord who loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so here these people who have been given the blessing of God's presence, given the blessing of God's calling and his constant provision and redemption are using what God has given to take advantage of the poor and the outsider, to take advantage of this blessing. You see, rejecting God's glory, which they've done, always leads to rejecting his mission, right? or we could say it the other way around, what really fuels the mission of the church, our position in the world as being agents of God's blessing to the world is a desire for God's glory, is an awe and a reverence for who he is. It's understanding that the blessing that we've been given in Christ is not just for our consumption, but it's for the benefit of those around us that we have a great calling, a great privilege and responsibility, and yet how often the church neglects that and utilizes what God has blessed us with for our own selfish gain. It's oftentimes not until churches become low in number where all of a sudden they've got an interest in evangelism, where all of a sudden the church is declining and we say we gotta reach more people, right, because we gotta get the numbers back up to where they were. But what about... Having a zeal and a passion for the glory of God so that we desire that his people would be a blessing to the nations. But instead, we make foolish decisions like, well, you know what it's gonna take? It's gonna take really good communicators and really good musicians and really awesome kids programming to get people in the doors because we care about evangelism. Nonsense. We've got a huge problem within the church that begins with a desire for the glory of God. Yes, it's a problem when the church is obsessed with money, sex, and power. But there's also a problem within the church when we take what God has blessed us with. And rather than using it as a blessing for those around us, we use it to take advantage. We use it to elevate ourselves. We use it to prop up ourselves. And so he's judging people. So this comes as a warning for rejecting the glory of God and rejecting his mission. And we see this in the response from the religious leaders in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They feared him. They wanted to destroy him because they feared him. They feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It wasn't because they had an issue with one of his points in his message. It wasn't because they were trying to protect the temple, right? And go, no, 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 no. Wait, this guy is putting an end to all of this, this whole system. They weren't trying to protect the temple. They were trying to protect themselves and preserve their own position and their own glory. And that's not our place in the world, Our position as Christians in the world isn't to fight for our own name, it's not to fight for our own glory. It's not to preserve ourselves. It's to fight for the glory of God. It's to desire his glory among our own, above our own. And so here, they're battling for glory and power, right? They're battling for their own significance. They're plotting his destruction in order to preserve their own power and glory. This here. of all places, is a battleground for glory. They're afraid of giving up something. And the shame in all of it is they're afraid of giving up what doesn't belong to them. They're given stewardship of the temple. It's not their temple. They're fighting for power and glory that comes from the temple that belongs to God. They're fighting, here's the kicker, they're fighting with the true temple, Jesus. They're fighting with the true high priest. They're fighting with the true and final sacrifice. Why? Because we don't give up glory very easily. We don't give up power very easily. We don't give what brings us significance very easily. To follow Jesus is to live for his glory not our own. It's to lay down our significance and find it in him. And so it's here, it's an ugly and difficult battle, especially when you consider where it's being fought. And so God's desire for his people is that we would live for his glory, that we would live on his mission, and that we would live by faith in him. In verse 20, it says, as they passed by in the morning, Now they're outside of Jerusalem again. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. He goes on to say, right, that this faith is expressed in prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, and and forgiveness, and when you stand praying, forgive. And so this, in these verses, he goes on to say, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, and does not doubt, but believes, right, whatever he asks will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Right, these are a great case study in cherry-picking some verses, right, taking them out of the context, and again, using them for our own gain, right, in the world of what's called name it and claim it. Right? Whatever you ask, just believe and it will be yours. We're also called the prosperity gospel, which is absolutely dangerous and horribly disgusting because it takes the words of Jesus and uses them for selfish gain at the expense of others. And if if you believe that, if those verses excite you, so that you can go home and pray for something and just name it and claim it, and as long as you have faith, God will give it to you. If you believe that, number one, please continue to search the scriptures. and as I'll explain, that's not even what's intended here at all in this passage. But I would also encourage you there's a new, new-ish documentary out called "American Gospel." Uh, it's wonderfully done. I would encourage you to watch it. If you, if you believe that, if you believe this, right. Mean, what's called the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement that you can claim verses like this and as long as I believe, as long as I have faith, God will give me health and wealth and prosperity and whatever I ask for. That's a great documentary. I would encourage you to watch it because it does a great job elevating and pointing to the true gospel. But what is he talking about here in this passage? He says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Right? He's, in one sense, he's talking about this mountain, where they were at that time, right? at Jerusalem, at the Mount of the Temple, the location of the temple. Right? Whoever says to this, be moved. Right? Jesus is about to overturn that whole system. And yet it's also another reminder that this battle right, is not a human or political battle, that they're not going to overthrow anyone with force as they've been expecting, right? That's been a common misunderstanding throughout the Gospels, throughout Mark, is that Jesus is going to come once they realize he's the Messiah as this revolutionary and overthrow things politically. But what he's pointing them to is prayer. Have faith that that's going to be the way that this is accomplished, And this is also a figurative statement. Nobody was going around changing the landscape, moving mountains from here to there just because they could. It's an illustration that what is impossible with man is possible through faith in the power of God. And he tells them that this type of faith is evidenced in continued prayer from a heart that doesn't doubt and from a heart that forgives others. That's what he says. Therefore, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And he's gonna overthrow this whole system. Things are about to change. As I said, he's gonna offer the final sacrifice. The curtain's gonna be torn in two. This whole thing is changing. He's fulfilling all of it, but not in the way that they expected. And so his call to his disciples then is have faith. Pray, forgive. That those are the ways that power is wielded in his kingdom. Unlike the power that was abused by the religious leaders in the temple, through taking power, through stepping on the poor, through neglecting the outsiders, for establishing their own position and finding their own significance in these other ways, right? Unlike that, Power is wielded in his kingdom through faith, through prayer that doesn't doubt, and through extending forgiveness, not seeking our own. And of course, then if you're paying attention, you notice verse 26 is not there. It jumps from 25 to 27, and there may be a a simple note in your Bible which says something like this that verse 26 isn't found in the earliest manuscripts. It went something like this. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven uh, forgiving your trespasses. And so that doesn't appear but in this passage, but it is in Matthew as part of that text and part of God's word. But then verse 27, is, as we get close to the end here, it says, they came again to Jerusalem. So a third time now. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him, right? And obviously they're, Uh, They're fired up. That'd be an understatement. I mean, he just rocked their worlds and everything in it. And so they come to him and they say, who in the world do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? I mean, the temple has been running for a long time under the chief priests, and Jesus comes and starts closing things down. And so he answers them with a question right, a question with a question. And it's not just a random question, right, he asks about John's baptism, it's not just to confuse them, it's not just to take them off the trail, it's not just to evade the question. It's not even just to stump them, right, though that's what he he does. He points to John's baptism, because that's where his ministry began, because that's where, God spoke, and in a sense, he's anointed as the true king at John's baptism when he baptizes Jesus. And so he's pointing to the reality. Right? He's, he's answering the question, what authority? Here's his authority. It was spoken of in John's baptism that he, as God's beloved son, right, was the true and anointed king, that that's where his authority is found. So he is the true king. Right? Jesus is the true temple. He is the true and great high priest. He is the true and final sacrifice and here they are rejecting that. Rejecting the true temple. Rejecting the true priest. Rejecting the true sacrifice. And so may we, unlike the religious leaders who fall under his judgment, may we as God's people live for his glory, not our own. May we live on his mission Right, for the blessing, for the good of others, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth. And may we live by faith in him. And to do this, we desperately need his grace. We desperately need his grace because with our best efforts, right, to go out and try as hard as we can and get ourselves cleaned up, with our best efforts, we end up as a cursed fig tree. That's where our efforts lead us, to try the best that we can to do this. But here's our hope. Jesus, yes, is true temple, but he's also the true vine, the true fig tree. As he says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. I'm the vine, he says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Right? So do not end up like that cursed fig tree. Right? So may we be the branches so grateful for the true vine right, who is able then by his power to bear fruit through us, right? that we might be the blessing to the nations that he desires us to be. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you, our Savior, our King. Grateful that you are our true priest, that you gave the final sacrifice for our sins. And God, may we be a people who who live for your glory, who desire your glory above our own. May we be a people who take the blessing that we have in your spirit dwelling within us and use that, not for our own pride, not for our own gain, not to separate or exalt ourselves above others, but to be the blessing to the nations that you desire us to be, to be faithful in bringing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And how desperately we need your help because you are certainly the true vine. Our desire is to be a people, our desire is to be a church who would bear much fruit for your glory, not for ours, not for our legacy, not for the legacy of Missio Church, but for the glory of God from here to the ends of the earth. May we rely on your means of grace. May we rely on all that you have provided and not take advantage of it to prop ourselves up so that we would look good in the eyes of men. But may we depend on all that you have provided in your spirit, by your word, through your son, so that we would be a people who bear your fruit, that your life would flow through us. May we be that kind of people. We pray these things in your name, amen.